Well, thank you for that, AJ. I appreciate that song as we enter into a moment now to hear God's spoken word. You know, I was uh, reminded, I often am reminded, but I guess I was just thinking about that this morning here, just sitting there just now. You can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Uh, Merv Staltzfus. Remember Merv Staltzfus? Some of you certainly remember Merv Staltzfus and, and, and then my mentor, uh, Dave Greiser. But they would often ask me, uh, what's the best day of the week? And I often, I always told them it was Sunday. And so that was fine early on, but it kept going on. And after about two years, the answer was always the same. And they were somewhat baffled by that, how I always thought as a pastor, Sundays was the best day of the week because Sunday is also one of the most stressful days of the week. Um, but it was always about Sundays. And that's what everything's about Sunday uh, for me. Um, but I also know that as we come to worship on Sunday morning, for, for, for you and for all of us, the week has been hectic, right? I mean, our lives are turned upside down often throughout the week, and we never quite know what to expect. We never quite know what to think. And when we come to church on a Sunday morning, we certainly don't want it turned upside down. And so there is something to be said for that, and I am very mindful of that, and I do trust that anything that we do doesn't distract, um, but will add to our morning service. And so I hope that this morning... Uh, as we once again look at Romans, um, that you'll just open your Bibles there and follow along. I've titled this The Promise. The Promise. I have verses 13 through 25, and we are going to cover all of them. Obviously, we're not going to be able to cover them in detail like I, I would prefer to do, uh, but rather do this in three parts. We're going to cover it in one and just kind of superficially cover it, and then you can do your own study uh, throughout the week maybe on that. I have a bulletin or an outline for you. Not much on it. I'll let you fill it in, but you'll at least be able to know a little bit where we're going to go this morning. So if you do have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to open them. And if you, have your, if you don't, you can open the pew Bible there in front of you. It's the most important thing you bring to church on Sunday is your Bible. And I want to start reading at verse 13. God's inspired and inerrant and sufficient word reads... For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, that is, God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which has been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. 
Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Not that, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, to us believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our wrongdoings and was raised because of our justification. Father, I just ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. Father, that would be sufficient. That would be enough. But Lord, now I would ask that your spirit would illuminate this text for us. And that it would open our hearts and our minds for what you would have for us this morning from these few verses this morning. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. The promise. The promise. Humanity functions on promises. We are not defined by community necessarily, by the promises of them, and yet community functions with unspoken promises or agreements that we could say also, right? I mean, that's how we do life together under a certain set of principles, under certain promises, under certain guidelines. We don't necessarily always call them promises. As, as kids, you may have, and maybe you still do it as adults, I, I don't know, uh, but you have these pinky promises, right? Where you kind of have these pinky promises, and I promise, right, to do whatever you're going to do. There's that type of promise, but then there's also, you know, as you grow up and as you get into adults, there's something that's called a promissory note. There's a promissory note that basically says, uh, that I will pay back or I will fulfill the terms of this promissory note when it comes to regarding agreements. And so you have pinky promises. These are relational promises. These are relationship promises, right? We promise by holding pinkies, which I don't know why that has anything merit to it, but whatever. We promise to do whatever. If that promise is broken, what is lost? What is lost is the relationship. So there's the pinky promises, if you will, that are relational. And if you have a promissory note that is broken, what happens? You lose your deposit. You lose your collateral. You lose your down payment. It is a monetary loss. So you have a relational and you have monetary, right? And so these are the two type of basic promises in a very generic way uh, that we have and that we function with in society. we got the relational promises, and then we got the monetary or collateral or material promises. Relational promises are something that is built upon, obviously, relationship. So it's a way that we decide and we agree to do life together. And when that relationship, when that promise is broken, it takes a long time to rebuild that relationship, does it not? It takes a long time to rebuild that trust and that faith, that confidence that we have in another person. A promissory note, well, the next time we follow through on such a thing, maybe the collateral, the down payment is just going to have to be a little bit larger, but still we may enter into one of those agreements again fairly quickly and fairly easily. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about this morning when we look at the promise, the promise that Abraham was working with, the promise that Abraham had and how he governed the rest of his life, really, if you will. And so this morning, we're going to look at the promise, and then we're going to look at the condition, and then third, we're going to look at the security. So there's the promise, the condition, and the security, right? These are the three things that are going to make up this promise. There's obviously the promise 
in of itself in verses 13 through 18. Promise is a word that's used fairly, uh, quite often five or six times in our text here this morning. But it starts with, in verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to an end to his descendants or to his seed. Now, what is this promise? And I want to go back a little bit into Genesis chapter 15. And there we're going to see the promise that Abraham was given. The promise that Abraham was given is right here. Now, mind you, this is at the beginning of Abraham's spiritual journey, if you will. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham out of the land of Ur, out of the Chaldeans as a pagan, and and Abraham followed and obeyed. I wouldn't say that at that time Abraham had completely surrendered or had become Christian, if you will, in our terms. And it wasn't until Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that Abraham finally becomes a Christian, if you want to put it in those types of definitions. But here's the promise that God gave to Abraham in verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 1. In these things, the word of the Lord uh, came to Abraham, Yahweh here. Yahweh spoke to Abraham in a vision and said this, Do not be afraid, Abram. He was still called Abram at this time. I am a shield to you, and your reward shall be great. But Abram finally starts asking some questions, and he says, Lord God, Lord Yahweh, really is how it should be said, Lord Yahweh, what will you give me? How is my descendants going to be great? I have no children, right? This is a very familiar story to us. And he says, in fact, an employee, if you will, someone, a servant from my house is going to be my heir, the one who's going to inherit my household. And God said, Yahweh told him and said, nope, this man will not be your heir, but one from your own body shall be your heir, shall be your inheritance. God took Abraham outside and he showed him all the stars. The other night I'd done that. Side note, I guess. But the other night I'd done that. I would invite you to do that. Maybe you already do that. But it was early in the morning and uh, middle of the night, actually. And I usually find myself taking a stroll outside about one or two in the morning. And I looked up and the stars were unbelievable. And I thought about this. I thought, God takes Abraham outside and says, look at all these stars. He goes to the beach. You know, and he says, look at all this sand. That's going to be in your inheritance. And Abraham the whole time is thinking, but I have no kids. But I have no kids. This is the promise that God gave to Abraham and said, I will give you all these descendants. I will give you all this land that you will possess it, that you will own it all. This is the promise that God gave to Abraham and that Abraham is working with. And we have here then Abraham is going to, or God is going to not have a pinky promise. There's going to be no promissory note that is going to be made. Both of those promises are what you would call a bilateral covenant, by being two people. Two people are involved in that agreement. But no, what God is going to do with Abraham, God is going to enter into what is called a unilateral covenant. A unilateral covenant, obviously, it only involves one person. And what God is going to do, right, he's going to take a cow, he's going to take a bunch of animals, he's going to cut them right in half. Aren't you glad we don't do contracts like that today? He's going to cut them in half, he's going to lay them out there, and then Abraham is going to see God walk between those animals, and typically in a bilateral agreement, both parties would walk through those animals. Whoever breaks the covenant, what was done to these animals is done to the person who broke the covenant. But God 
doesn't have Abraham walk through those animals. It is only God who walks through there. That is the agreement. That is the covenant. That is the promise that God is making with Abraham. And God is saying, Abraham, this is all on me. If I break this promise, may this be done to me. That's the promise that Abraham is working with. But as you read the life of Abraham, there's hurdles to the promises they're not. First, he has no children, obviously. But not only does he have no children, but when this promise is made, he's nearly 80 years old when this promise is made. The land that God promises to Abraham is already occupied. It is occupied by the Canaanites of the land. Yahweh says, I will give you this land. And then when finally God gives Abraham and Sarah a child, God says, take that child, take that miracle child, take him up the mountain and sacrifice him to me. These are some of the hurdles that Abraham had to navigate with this promise. There wasn't only hurdles to the promise. There was also hurdles to life. You look at the life of Abraham. He started out his journey, went out of the land of Ur, and he runs smack dab right into a famine. There's a famine in the land, and so he has to go down to another people, and then he finds himself in another problem. (laughs) He has a real problem. His wife is too pretty. She's beautiful. And he says, if the people of the land, these heathens of the land, see my wife, and then they look at me, they're going to kill me and take my wife. That was a little of a hurdle that he had to go under. Abraham had another problem. He had too much money. What are we going to do? Lot and Abraham, they had to split up. There was this battle happening within the nephew and with the uncle. They had too many possessions, too much money they had to deal with. He had to rescue his, ne- his lot, or Lot, his nephew. He had to rescue him from the, the people from battle that took place, and some kings took him into captivity and all his family. So Abraham, Abram at the time, had to go bail him out, had to go do, fight his battle for him. And then there was also this, this, this insulting name change that Abraham had to endure. His name was Abram, means a, a father, a father, or an exalted father. Changed it to Abraham before he had children. To father of many nations. How insulting is that? I have no children, and yet I'm names changed to father of many nations. And then, of course, Abraham had to also go through that uncomfortable surgery late in his life. Then he had marriage problems, right? Because he had Hagar as his wife, who was given to him by his wife. That's complicated. But he had to navigate that. Then Abraham had to rescue Lot a second time from Sodom and Gomorrah because he didn't want to leave the land and God was going to destroy it. And again, Abraham finds himself in a difficult position and says, wow, my wife is still beautiful. These people of the land still want my wife. They're going to kill me and take my wife, so I'm going to lie about her again. This is the hurdles, and this is the the, the hurdles to the promise, and this is the hurdles to life that Abraham had to navigate. He had to navigate all these types of hurdles in his life. And so Abraham's life, sometimes we just look at Abraham and we don't take some of these factors into play. But that's the promise. And that's a little bit of the backup to the promise. You're you're quite familiar with it. 
But what I really want to focus in here this morning, and that is going to be the condition. And the condition that we find Abraham in in verses 19 through 21. And 19 through 21 is where I want to spend some time because this is really key to this passage. And I want to read them again by themselves outside the rest of the context for you because this is, this is, this is key. Verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, he, Abraham, contemplated, considered, gave careful thought to his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured, being fully convinced that what God had promised he was able also to perform. This was not an empty promise. Abraham was convinced of these things, and yet Abraham was a realist. We see it in verse 19. Abraham was not blind in his acceptance of this promise and acceptance of his own condition. Abraham did not, though, become weak in faith. It says he did not become weak in faith, but he did what? He became strong in faith in verse 20. Abraham contemplated, he considered his own body, and he seen the reality of it. He gave careful consideration of himself. He understood that, Abraham, I am dead. Speaking of reproductively, there's nothing I can do as this old man. And not only that, if I could, my wife's womb certainly will not conceive a child. He, he was a realist, and he looked at this situation and said, none of these things make sense. Both the deadness and the promise of God came into the deadness of both Sarah and Abraham. And yet there was this promise God gave them, although realistically, Abraham understood his condition. And it tells us that Abraham believed. How could Abraham believe a promise like that under those conditions? But he did. There was no ritual that was performed as of yet. The law is another 430 years before the law comes. And so it's not like he fulfilled the law, not like he fulfilled any ritual. Just out of the goodness of God, God chose Abraham, and Abraham chose to believe God. But think about it. What would cause anyone to believe God under those conditions? It's Abraham. But what would cause anyone, what would cause Abraham, what would cause anyone to believe God in those conditions? Think of yourself. I mean, Abraham was a real guy, right? I mean, I know it was a long time ago, but he was a real person. Sarah was a real person. We're real people. What if we believed something like that today? What if today we found ourselves under these conditions? What would happen? I mean, at best, we would be laughed at, right? At best, we would be thought of as a bit not completely thinking clearly or straight. I mean, think about it. This thing of belief is no small thing. This thing of belief is huge. How can someone, under these conditions of that Abraham and Sarah were in, how can they believe? How can they believe?
you know, I think sometimes we remove ourselves from the Bible story so far that we just automatically think, well, yeah, of course Abraham believed, and what a great example and story he is. What about us? I mean, how do we believe? We have hurdles to the promise. We have hurdles in life. How do we stay faithful and true to the promise as Abraham here did? I want to again read verses 19 and 21 because they're key. Paul says this, without becoming weak in faith. Abraham contemplated his situation. And he realized that I'm an old man, and he realized that my wife's an old lady. That's my translation. And yet with respect to what God told Abraham, which was what? That his inheritance are going to be more than the stars, more than the sand, and that he was going to inherit all this land Yet he did not waver in unbelief. He didn't waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith. How do you grow strong in faith under those conditions? Paul builds this and puts this in the best possible light. That even if, for us, even if a hundred-year-old Abraham would have been up to the task. The 90-year-old womb of Sarah could not possibly have conceived a child. But I want you to notice something else. Verse 20. Giving glory to God. That's no small thing. Even in the midst of this condition, and even in the midst of the absurdity of this all, Abraham gave God glory. Abraham was a realist. Abraham was also a creationist. What does he say? What does Paul link Abraham's faith to? It's in verse 17. Jump up to verse 17. Paul says that as it is written, I've made you a father of many nations, though he hadn't as of yet, in the presence of him, in presence of God, whom Abraham believed, that is God, who gives life to the dead, listen, who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that do not exist. Paul hangs the ability for God to give life to a dead man. Abraham hangs his, his belief in the promise of God on creation on the creation story. Well, that's a bit of a stretch. That's what it says. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that do not exist. I mean, again, before there was anything, God created. We know those stories very, very well. Really understand what we're saying when we say that. Let's say somebody says to you, and you get this, right? You get this. People comes up to you, and somebody who's really challenging your biblical beliefs. Oh, you believe in the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture? Yeah, yeah. Well, what about six days of creation? Do you really believe it was X amount of years old and six literal days? Right? That's why do they want to go there so quickly? But what I'm what I'm saying is that's a loaded question. Just. Just divert that. Don't, don't go there right away. Because if you answer yes, 
which would be the correct answer, by the way. But if you answer yes, what are they going to say? You're just unintelligent. You're not informed. You don't believe science. Follow the science, right? You don't believe stuff. There's, there's no way. I, they, they want to dismiss the rest of you. Anything else you have to say, right? If you say no, what are they going to say? Well, you're intelligent. Therefore, obviously, you don't believe this other stuff. Because if you don't believe this and you realize that this was a fallacy, this was a parable, this was just a story that was made to teach or train some people, right? What are you going to do? We must pick our battles wisely, but we also must stay true to the appeal of Scripture. And that's exactly what Paul does in chapter 4 here. Verse 3, look what he says in verse 3. He says in verse 3 of chapter 4, he says, For what does the Scripture say? Verse 17, as it is written. Verse 23, now for this, not for his sake only was it written. Paul points everything back to Scripture, and Paul points the faith that Abraham had, the belief that Abraham had, back on to Scripture. And the God who created from nothing could certainly fulfill that promise also. There was a class that introduced me. My first class introduced me to the um, to critical thinking. First class that really taught me to study my Bible in a systematic way. Uh, it was taught by two, two different professors. The main professor was Marion Bontrager. Some of you may know him. Some of you may know Michelle Hershberger or John Sharp. I know some of you know John Sharp. Anyways, they, they, they wrote this book of this biblical lit class. I always told Mary, Mary, you need to put all that material in a book. But finally he did, not that he listened to me. Um, but anyways, in that book he writes this. It's the Bible uh, last story by Marion Bontrager. In there he writes this. He says, in Genesis 1, God creates order out of chaos with debar. The Hebrew word. The Hebrew term that means spoken word. In Genesis, the spoken word is a powerful force. Like a missile blasting from the mouth of God, exploding in the nothingness to create light, life, in the universe. Now, I like that. Marion and I butted a lot of heads. <laughs> but this is one thing that I enjoy how he interprets the word debar. It's just out of nothingness. How do you, some of you who are, scholar, or, 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 are good in the Hebrew language, what does debar mean in English? How do you define it? And I think he does it well right there, that out of the mouth of God, exploding into nothingness to create light, life in the universe. It is this God. It is this God right here who promises a child to a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. And it is this God who now Paul writes about in chapter 21 when he points back to that creation story. Well, what's the point of all that? What are you trying to get at? Well, this is what I'm trying to get at. It's what I've already said. We all have hurdles in life, right? We all have hurdles in our faith. We all have hurdles in believing the promises that we say, that we said and that we're going to sing about. We have a hard time with these promises. We have hurdles within our life that want to derail us. What do we do? Where do we go? We, too, have these promises and these hurdles. I, I love a song that is sung by Phil Wickham. Battle Belongs, it's called. In that, he starts out with this. When all I see is the battle, you, speaking of God, 
you see my victory. A couple paragraphs later, he says, when all I see is a cross, because that's what we call the hurdles in life. It's my cross, right? When all you see is a cross, God sees the empty tomb. God sees the empty tomb. Jeremiah 29, 11. It's a verse that we love, right? You can quote it without even me reading it. You can quote it. For I know the plans that I have for you. Plans for salvation and not for disaster. To give you a future and to give you a hope. But we don't see it in its context. When, when Jeremiah wrote these words, when did he write them? He wrote them when they were in slavery in Babylon when they were in exile, when they were down as slaves in Babylon. And oh yeah, by the way, a couple verses before Hebrews chapter, or before verse 11, God says, by the way, I put you there. I put you in exile and I will restore you and I will bring you back. God put them in exile. God put them in slavery. And God says, I will also bring you back. We have the promise of life, and yet we have the reality of our condition. How then can we have security in the promise of life? We read stories of Abraham. We read stories, and we have this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, plastered on our walls and on our phone and everywhere else. But we fail to understand the context. We fail to carry that over into this life. How then can we? When our life gets turned upside down, when God makes a promise that we think is ridiculous, and our life goes counter to what we expect a Christian's life should be, what do we do? Do we dig in? Do we dig in as Abraham did? Does it strengthen our faith? And do we give God glory even in the midst of that? Or do we say, you know what, God? You can't be real. Because if you were, this wouldn't have happened. If you were, fill in the blank, would have not happened. So how then would we find security in that? It's verses 23, 22, but I'll go to 23 and 25. Verses 23 to 25. Paul says, not for his sake only, was it, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him as righteousness, but for our sake also, to whom it will be, So it was written, past tense, to it will be, future tense, it will be credited to us who believe in him, who believe in God, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our wrongdoings and was raised because of our justification. And what may be one of the most glorious chapters in all of Scripture, Ephesians 1, I love that, you already know that, I love that chapter. Verse 4. It tells us that it is God who chose us. Verse 7, it is Jesus who saves us. Verse 13, and it is the Holy Spirit who seals us. It is God who chooses us. It is Jesus who saves us. It is the Spirit who seals us. It's a beautiful picture of the work of the Trinity. John Murray, and he writes in this in his commentary on Romans, he says that the efficacy of the death of Christ and of his resurrection lies on the face of this very text right here. As Jesus rose again in order to guarantee our justification, so he was delivered over in order to deal effectively with our trespasses. Do you see that? 
So as Jesus was hung upon that cross for our justification, he was raised for our salvation. Next week, we may get there. Verse 10 of chapter 5. Paul says, for, while, for if while we were yet enemies, we're still enemies, we were reconciled to God through what? Through the death of his son. While we were still enemies, through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we are saved by his life. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is worthless. See, our faith, our security lies not in rituals. Our security lies not in works. Our security lies in the blood of the new covenant. The blood of the new covenant, our security lies in the unilateral covenant sealed by the blood of Jesus. That is why we too can have the faith that Abraham had. That is why we too when we see about the promises that we have been given, and yet when life throws us a hurdle, and yet when our faith is on the rocks, if you will, we can look back to Scripture and we can understand that this was not a covenant that was a bilateral covenant. This was a unilateral covenant. And what God has done, just as He's done for Abraham and all the other greats of the Bible that we love to look at, God will too and can do also for us. Not anything we do. It's all about what God has done for us. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this word. I thank you for this too big of a bite to chew on one Sunday morning. But Lord, I pray that as we reread this text, as we focus upon some of these things that were spoken of here this morning, Father, that you would continue to speak to our life throughout the week that you would continue to nourish our relationship with you throughout the week on these promises that are not just for Abraham, but for also us also. I pray, Lord, that you would make that very real to our life here this morning, and not just this morning, but as we go through this week. And I don't know, Lord, maybe this week will throw us a hurdle, throw us a curveball. I don't know. Maybe this week our faith will be challenged. I pray, Lord back to Scripture, that we point back to these greats and look back to what has been done on our behalf. Nothing that we've done, but what you have done. I pray it in the name of Jesus.